podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Cinema Recall Podcast, part of ThatMomentIn.com. I'm your host, The Vern, and on today's episode, we'll be discussing both the camp classics Valley of the Dolls from 1967, and then Beyond the Valley of the Dolls from 1970. And joining me today is Mr. Ryan L. Terry. Hello, Ryan. How are you doing today, sir? Uh, hi, Vern. I'm doing just great. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on the show to talk about these two films, one of which is really at the forefront of many of our minds because of Sharon Tate's uh, appearance and character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And we even had a couple of uh, comments about it. Uh, for instance, the one who ended up doing dirty movies. And so it's fun to get to sit down and talk about uh, not only Valley of the Duels, uh, but the uh, the the follow up slash not follow up of uh, Beyond Valley of the Dolls. Yes, two completely different flits out there. Now, for longtime listeners of the podcast, you'll recognize Ryan as being the guest on our Sounds of the Lambs episode. But since we changed uh, podcast hosting apps. That episode is no longer on the network. It'll be re-shown up again in October for our 31 Days of Halloween posts. Um, so this is technically your second appearance, but you were on the show before, so when I replay that episode, uh, we go more into your um, your uh, writing career. Uh, Ryan is the owner of uh, Um He's also a professional figure skater, and he's a theme park critic, and we definitely go into more of that aspect on that episode. Uh, so definitely look out for our Sounds of the Lambs episode. It'll be posting uh, sometime in October, and I definitely highly recommend everyone go check that out. Um, but let's get into uh, Value of the Dolls. But if you don't mind, Ryan, I do need to take a quick little break and play some ads from some other podcast shows, okay? Oh, go right ahead. All right. After these messages, we'll be right back. Was A Quiet Place inspired by signs it comes at night in War for the Planet of the Apes? Was Ready Player One influenced by Avatar, Wreck-It Ralph, and The Last Starfighter? Is the Hurricane Heist more influenced by Sharknado or Geostorm? These are the kinds of questions my guest co-hosts and I discuss on my podcast, Piecing It Together. Every week we look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it. Whether it's the story, the character development, tone, or even use of music. Every movie was influenced by something that came before and we want to figure out what. Check out Piecing It Together on your favorite podcast app or check us out on piecingpod.com. You can also follow us on social media at piecingpod. Piecing It Together is a part of the All Points West Podcast Network. Hey there, bad movie fans. I'm Honor Knight, head cinematic flusher from the Soiled Restroom Cinema Podcast. Do you like playing with cinematic turds as much as we do? Every Thursday, we scour the bowels of streaming media to bring you the absolute worst Hollywood has to offer. Get in on all of our flushing action at our home restroom on the net, SignalsOfFury.com, where you can subscribe to the show and follow us on social media. Soil Restroom Cinema. 
We're here to flush it so you don't have to see it. Now, the motion picture that shows what America's all-time number one bestseller first put into words. I wasn't much of a man living with you, Neely, but that's over. I'm straightened out now. With that little whore! That little whore makes me feel nine feet tall. Dolls, the instant turn-on. For instant love. Instant excitement. Ultimate hell. Neely Starring Barbara Parkins as Anne. Good girl with a million dollar face and all the bad breaks. She took the green pills. Well, how do you think I feel sneaking out of your apartment at four o'clock in the morning? Patty Duke as Neely, who was such a nice kid. And then someone put her name in lights and turned her into a lush. She took the red pills. Sure, I take dolls. I've got to get some sleep. I've got to get up at five o'clock in the morning. It's sparkle, Neely. Sparkle. Neely, you know it's bad to take liquor with those pills. They work faster. Have you heard from Jennifer? She wanted to know where she could get an abortion. Sharon Tate as Jennifer. International sex symbol, victimized by everyone. She took the blue pills. How to hell with them. Let him droop. And honey, let's face it. All I know how to do is take off my clothes. Susan Hayward as Helen Lawson, who had the talent to get to the top. And I'll make it A gut, fingernail, and claw fighter who went down swinging. She took the yellow pills. Look, they drummed you right out of Hollywood. So you come crawling back to Broadway. Well, Broadway doesn't go for booze and dope. You get out of my way. I've got a guy waiting for me. That's a switch from the fags you're usually stuck with. At least I never had a marry one. You take that back and your hands off the nation's most startling and hotly discussed bestseller, now on the screen with every shock and sensation intact. You think I could sleep with you here in this house? This wonderful old house? And you beside me in that marvelous old four-poster upstairs? It's a marriage bed line. You were thinking of marriage. Miriam? I'm pregnant. Helen, come on. Neely O'Hara can't hurt you. <laughs> you bet your ass she can, because she isn't going to get the chance. Now, the all-time bestseller is the motion picture you wanted it to be. Valley of the Dolls. All right, you just heard the trailer of the movie Valley of the Dolls, uh, directed by Robert Benson. If I, I think I'm saying this name right. I'm, I'm always bad trying to find names of... Yeah, Robert, I can do this out here. Yeah, I'm sorry, Mark Robson, and uh, it stars Barbara Parkins, uh, Peggy Duke, and Sharon Tate, like Ryan mentioned before. And the story is about these uh, three women who uh, come to Los Angeles and find fame in certain ways and also find ways to destroy themselves in certain ways, and 
I kind of want to get into your opinion of this movie. To me, I really thought that when I first watched this film, that these three characters, these three women character, went to L.A. together to find fame, and throughout the course of the film, they would find you know things to destroy themselves. But they weren't actually all three friends. Uh, they kind of met up through the film, but they were not joined together. And I found that to be kind of a confusing thing. Um, I think that's also the same way as it is in the book. Uh, the book was very popular back in the 60s, written by uh, Jacqueline Suzanne. Um, but let's kind of get your thoughts about the movie overall. Yeah. Um, I... This was uh, my first viewing of the film uh, as a uh, the, uh, as I teach screenwriting at the University of Tampa. I uh, you know do my very best to make sure that I watch a wide variety of movies and read a wide variety of screenplays, so I uh, can be actively learning um, all throughout you know my my teaching career as I'm uh, teaching future writers. And this is one that was. Uh, on the radar, but had never been watched. I was uh, intrigued. I was um, kind of prompted to watch it by uh, the the uh, references and nods to in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And when you uh, asked me if I wanted to talk about these two movies, it's like, well, at the time I hadn't seen either one, but they were two movies that I know I needed to watch. So I'm so I'm glad that you kind of uh, kind of pushed me uh, over the edge to watch mm -hmm. them uh, because uh, I'm uh, very glad I did. Uh, a little more so with the latter than with the former uh, because Valley of the Dolls, in my mind, it's um, – well, I was watching it with uh, my friend Leon in Germany. He and I watch movies together most Sundays. We uh, will start the movie at the same time, and then we uh, uh, Skype chat. You know, as, So it's like we're sitting in the same room. It's a, a great friendship he and I. Uh, have and so this is one that uh, he had also been meaning to watch, and all through the movie we just kept uh, like looking at each other, making comments like, "What the fuck are we watching?" <laughs> it was just like this is such a bad movie, but oddly enough, in a very good way, one may be able to say, I'd say this is the kind of movie that you have want to get a little tipsy and watch. It's a very much a um, perhaps a party movie, one that you would uh, get together with your friends and maybe as you're playing board games or whatever and eating you know, chips and dip and pizza and chicken wings and you're just having a fun time, that this is the movie that you put on. Uh, you could easily turn it into a drinking game. Oh, totally. So every time, yes, so every <laughs> time somebody pops a doll, uh, which you guys, uh, listeners, you'll, you'll learn later on is uh, – uh, nickname or slang for pills that was new for me so if it's new for you don't feel bad because until i watched this movie i had no idea that uh pills were referred to as dolls yeah it's like um, dull, yeah. dull fiend or something like that that's what it's a downer drug that's what dolls are uh named after uh dolphin as a sort of like downer drug but I'll, i don't only just uh in the movie i thought only one of the characters in this the patty duke uh character is the only one that I see Tatum Dolls, uh, maybe that one, um, or the uh, other actress that uh, she's trying to replace the Ethel Merman type of character. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, the Helen Lawson. 
Character. Oh yeah, that was uh, that was a, a great subplot and and really helped to kind of provide a lot of context and uh, more of an uh, emotional connection with our, with our main story. So I uh, I like that. Um, I mean, what we have here are three not completely separate, but um, like three. Uh, we have our our A, B, and C stories yeah. are only intersect every now and again, but yet they all complement each other very well. Uh, I'd say it's kind of uh, kind of Cloud Atlas like. Oh yeah. And that <laughs> they um that they are connected, but yet they they're they really are wholly their their own stories, and they um uh, but they um they, they they do provide uh a they provide nice layers sure. through which to experience the movie because uh, each of our girls, albeit their their main their external goal, it, it's all the it, it's all the same. It's um uh well it's it, oh, go ahead. Well, let's kind of talk about the three characters because this is where it gets confusing for me in terms of telling a story, and maybe you can help kind of um describe this more to me. So we have the character of Anne Wells, uh, uh, played by Barbara Perkins. She's upset about her small town life. You know, she's getting kind of bored uh, living in this small town. And she, you know, she decides to go out to the city to uh, get a job or become famous in some sort of way. She wants to be a writer. Um, then we have the character of Neely O'Hara, uh, played by Patty Duke, and she is this very. She wants to become a very famous singer, and the first scene we see her in, uh, she was going to help replace this one other famous singer, but it didn't go well in the audition. Um, and then we have uh, Sharon Tate. Uh, character of Jennifer North. Uh, she's a woman that's just known only for her beauty, um, and she has these conversations with her mom all the time about she has to do these exercises, and then uh, no one's going to take you seriously as an actress. You know, you're known just for your body. Make sure that all your exercises are just for your body. And then throughout the course of the movie, these three characters become famous. And then they uh, delve into other bad things, but it happens really fast. Like the Penny Duke character of Delia O'Hara, she has that sort of audition. She's like backstage, and um, the other one of the other uh, producers is telling her that uh, she won't be this famous person right away unless she she was asked to like, bow out of a production even though she really wanted it. And Bridget's like saying, well, I can't let my other client, uh, the Helen Lawson character, lose his part, so bow gracefully. And then the next scene, she's doing this uh, telethon uh, sort of performance, and then she becomes really big after that. And I feel like her rise to fame and her downfall was like, pretty fast. Um, the um, Anne Wells character, she gets involved with this other man and she becomes addicted to alcohol. Uh, Sharon Tate's character gets involved with this other singer, this really famous singer named Tony Scotty, played by Tony Polar. And then he has a mental breakdown. And then when uh, Pei Du's character has a mental breakdown as well, she meets up with Tony Polar. So there's all these different things going on all at once. When I'm watching this, like, I don't know 
how to construct this. It's, it's a movie that's really difficult to describe to someone, and I'm having oh, a hard time. Yeah, it it very much is. Uh, it's uh, it is uh, highly uh, non-linear. Yeah, and uh, it's more of a um, honestly, it's just really more of an experience. It's not it's not a movie to watch honestly for for the story. It's not one that I feel is um, kind of typifies the art of filmmaking it's certainly a cult classic and i can understand why especially because uh it was seen as so very shocking when it was released in 1967 but you'll hear worse language and see more nudity on primetime tv these days <laughs> i know right so <laughs> i that was like i because i don't because i heard how risky the movie was and and that's uh that's what i was looking for is and but i watch it like oh this is uh i mean beyond valley of the dolls far more risque than valley of the dolls but whenever you hear of risque movies you hear like valley of the dolls is one that comes up but i think this is a movie that um it it played around with film conventions of that day we have a lot of uh uh, abstract sequences. We have a lot of 60s shapes and colors. And I, I think playing with film as a medium is something that you can enjoy in this. Uh, I think the, uh, I mean, kind of the, the, the story, I mean, it's very kind of a star is born, you know, show business will corrupt you. And, uh, you know, it, and then, you know, pills, you know, you know, liquor and pills are going to kill you. And so we have a lot of, uh, kind of uh, perhaps some, uh, moral uh, some uh, morality messages that are in there stay away from hollywood if you want to keep uh, you know your life together uh but it's I, I don't feel it ever all comes together it's a lot of great ideas that are not cohesive i suppose is a good way of putting it um some good character studies individually but ultimately i, I don't find the movie to be uh that memorable other than it was a a good bad movie as i mentioned in my opening remarks because some stuff happens way too fast and then other stuff takes so long to get through there are many times i was looking at my watch i'm like this is the longest two hours that i've spent in a movie in a long time um but yet like rise to fame poof we're just like like overnight you know we're famous and yep. then the, the pacing is a problem uh, in this film, but uh, we have, I mean, we have three interesting characters that uh, you know, it, we can we can connect with, uh, with with one of them because maybe we're not facing their particular struggle, but maybe in an analogous way, you know, we're we're facing our own struggles and can identify with where they're coming from. Well, I think my biggest issue with the movie is the fact that there are three characters, but there doesn't seem to be one central character because the movie starts off with one character, the uh, Barbara Perkins one, and then it uh, tells you about these other characters, but it doesn't seem focused on one. And for a movie like this to work, I want to focus on one of the characters. You can definitely show what happens to other characters, but if you have three people being the main focal point of the storyline, I seem to be lost in who I should be rooting for. That's a you know? great point, Vern. I 
Um, I just, you know, actually right now in my semester at the university, you know, we're uh, talking about uh, central characters and their external goal and you know, with their internal need, providing the motivation. And, and I've explained to them to stay away from ensemble casts. Not that ensemble casts are bad. Uh, Star Wars A New Hope is, is a great go-to example of how ensemble casts really well. But until you know how to work well with a, with one, with a singular central character, you can get lost in the ensemble cast because you have difficulty focusing and, and then you run the risk of not knowing, uh, who, uh, you know, who are, who, who our lead is. You're, you're dividing yourself too far. It's, it's too thin. It's like, uh, not enough butter scraped over too much, uh, bread as, I think it was either Frodo or Bilbo said in one of the Lord of the Rings movies. And so, and, and that, that's the issue with ensemble cast. And so this feels very much like an amateurish mistake. And I think the movie would have, uh, been perhaps, uh, a, a, a bit stronger if we had had a, a central, you know, one of the girls as our lead. And then the other two could have been chief supporting, still very important. Uh -huh. And they could have helped to, uh, emphasize uh, different themes in the movie. They could drive the subplots, but at the end of the day, you know, we have a central character with a well-defined external goal, uh, you know, motivated by the need to uh, uh, achieve uh, or accept whatever it is. And uh, maybe to your point, had we had one central character, that it the narrative would have been stronger. But as it is, we we have three. And then our focus keeps shifting throughout. I mean, for the entire movie, there's not one point in which you can say this of these three, quote, leading ladies, this is the one who is uh, the most uh, leading. Uh, maybe you could say that it's kind of similar to some of the uh, negative feedback, uh, negative criticism of last year's The Favorite, even though The Favorite was my number one movie of last year. Um, because you know, there are a lot of arguments. You know, is Emma Stone the lead or is Olivia Coleman the lead? In terms of award season, we know who is classified as lead and supporting. But you know, that's one where you could make uh, make the argument either way. I think it's a little bit clearer in the favorite that yes. <laughs> uh, Olivia Coleman's Queen Anne is our central character. But you could make a convincing case that Emma Stone's character may have been our our central one. But in, but this is a uh, you know that's. Yeah, I know that's the closest example that I can think of, at least in recent times. No, and that's a definitely a good point, bringing up the favorite because you actually do have two central characters that play off each other very well, and you're interested in both stories. They are part of the same plot line, mm -hmm. and with Value of the Dolls, I don't really see it as being that much. And unless you're Paul Thomas Anderson, it's difficult to do ensemble pieces and make them work because you look at Boogie Nights and uh, Magnolia, uh, a lot of different characters in those, but they all feel important to the stories. They each have their own yes. like, bad story, and I feel like their bad stories were better written than the ones in Valley of the Dolls. In Valley of the Dolls, all I got were just these three women. Uh, one is just known for her beauty, that's the Sharon Tate one, and we got Patty Dude's character who wants to become very popular, but she seems to be, especially the Neely O'Hara character, for me, she seems to be just the same at the beginning 
as she does at the end. Like she, her character doesn't have much change. At least I didn't think so. No, there's there's so little change with her character. And to be honest, she's not. She doesn't do anything to make you. Uh, like her like yeah. if she like i think maybe she's supposed to be our central character i mean even though we agree it, there's so little she oh, there's right, nothing right. to like about her and she's not even somebody that you love to hate either you're left in this middle where it's like you're kind of annoying i don't really like you you're you really are a bitch all through the entire movie except when you first when you first meet her when you first meet her it's like oh i want this person to succeed but then we learn very quickly it's like no she's She's a mean and nasty person, mm-hmm. and, and there's never – she has very – there's no redeeming qualities. Even the some of the best villains out there have redeeming qualities, and that's why we love these villains so much. There's – I don't find there's anything to like about her, and that's a big problem, especially when uh, they are a – you know, par- when they're part of the central ensemble cast that you know we don't really like her. I, I definitely liked – our other two characters uh, much more than her. And I don't think I was supposed to not like her. I think I was supposed to empathize with her. Um, but I was even having trouble doing that because she was just so unlikable. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, if you had to pick someone in this for our three main ladies to be the main lead, who would you want to be the main lead? Uh... I think Anne would have uh, made a much better lead. I think of all of our characters, she is the most relatable because she kind of falls into her career because she's looking for a you know better career. You know, she loves show business. Uh, she's you know she is pretty. Maybe she's a little talented, but not quite. At least for that 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 day and age, not quite pretty enough or not quite talented enough to to break onto the scene. So she works in the office. And and how many of us? have taken jobs where it's uh, connected to what we want to do, but we can't quite get into what we want to do. So we're going to be around it. Uh, that's, uh, I mean, I've certainly, um, you know, had my share of, of those types of experiences. And I, so I think she is uh, the most relatable for the audience. So the film could have been helped by her story being the A story, her story being the main action plot. Okay. And then we could have had the other two as our uh, as our supporting. Gotcha. Very good. Very good. Um, well, as always on Cinema Recall, we like to discuss um, our most favorite moments or at least the most memorable moments of this feature. Um, did you have a memorable moment that you want to discuss about this? Um, uh, Vern, I really wish I did. Okay. I don't find anything about this movie – particularly memorable other than just the, the you know uh, having watched it uh there's not i don't there's no real moment that sticks out to me like this is the moment that truly defines the movie um i think maybe okay well well here we go uh for the sake of argument i will pick a scene that i really liked i really liked the scene between uh nelly and um, and uh, Lawson in the uh, the ladies' dressing room, in oh, the, or in the ladies' lavatory, perhaps. I I really like that scene. Is that the scene where she pulls off the hair? Yes. Okay, it's weird yeah. too because uh, Helen Lawson, that character that was supposed to be played uh, by Judy Garland, um, they did a whole bunch of screen tests with Judy Garland, and she was all ready to go and 
be a part of that feature. And due to Judy Garland's own addition to uh, dress and alcohol, uh, <laughs> her role uh, had to be given away uh, to uh, Susan Hayward. And I think Lucy LeBall was supposed to be uh, cast in that role as well. Oh, I would have loved to have seen Lucy LeBall in that role, yeah. even even probably more so than Judy Garland. I'm going to see Judy this uh, uh, this afternoon, so okay. I'm uh, so the kind of so it's funny you mentioned that because it's like oh I'm gonna go uh, you know, go see the kind of that that you know that era uh, of of that last chapter of her life. Yeah. Uh, but Lucille Ball. Yeah. I uh, that you know I think that would have worked extremely well, and she was because uh, she passed away in the 80s, so she definitely would have been. Because she was doing the Lucy show at this time, I think. Yeah. So that that would have been uh, really good. Ah, oh, I wonder why they didn't work out. I what a fantastic uh, casting choice that would have been. Because even the hair works. Because you know uh, Heather Lawson has you know, his red curly hair. I can totally see Lucille Ball uh, playing that role, and I I, I feel that uh, because of how charismatic she is as an actress. And uh, and still to this day, you know, the uh, the, the the queen of comedy with uh, I think Carol Burnett's a very close second, but the queen, you know, queen oh. of comedy that um, I think that would have worked well. Even uh, actually speaking of whom, even uh, Carol Burnett, I yes. think would have been an, an excellent choice, which would have been at the height of her career. Uh, I mean, her career's still going, uh, but like because this would have been during um, during her sketch comedy show. So that I could see where this would have uh, kind of worked very well, but those are yeah what a, uh, what great casting choices. I mean, I mean, we still wound up with a a good good performance, but I think the performances could have been enhanced by either I mean a Garland, Lucio Ball, or or even Carol Burnett. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. Now we talked about your scene about the, um, uh, Neely O'Hara pulling the hair off. Great scene. Great little. Uh, Campy fight sequence, but the sequence that I'm going to talk about real fast is the sequence, and in the movie we find out that Sharon Tate's character Jennifer North uh, has been forced to be making these uh, pornographic films in Europe. Not really so much pornographic, but softcore, where they show a lot of like skin and nudity. Um, and then we find out through the course of the film that she has developed breast cancer, and so. There's a moment when she is in a room and she decides to take an overdose of pills. That when I'm watching the film, it was only it was the only time in the movie where I felt kind of sympathy for any of these characters because uh, in Sharon Tate's character's taste, in, in Sharon Tate's character's case, uh, her body is the only thing that gave her money and mm-hmm. fame and everything and. When she loses that, she decides that, well, that's it. I have nothing. No one else will love me for anything else other than my body. Only people that care, only thing that people care about is my body. And I felt really kind of like sad. Like, well, shit, that's really disturbing and messed up. The fact that you want to take your own life because you feel like you have no more value in this mm-hmm. world except for your physical appearance. And I feel like a lot of people. Uh, especially like actors and models, I feel they probably feel that same way that once my looks are gone, that's it. I've got nothing else in this world, so I'm just going to end my life. And that scene was kind of uh, important, I guess. I mean, even though everything else in this film was very 
bad and campy, but that was the only time in the film where I felt like general feelings for a character was during that scene where she takes the bills and she's lying on bed and she uh, goes over her past relationships with other men and, and conversations with her mother and she just just decides to end it all. Yeah, that was uh, 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 that is a, a very good point that you make, Vern. I I feel that you are right in that this is uh, among the few, if only uh, the only scene in which you feel uh, where it evokes uh, true emotion, and, and this emotion being um, sadness and 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 empathy um, for uh, for her character. It's it's hard to say that about any of the other scenes, especially when you might go from a really emotional, touching scene to that weird ass song that kept popping up oh. through the um, through the movie. Whenever it was like, uh, I don't even know the name of the song, but you know what I'm talking yes, about. Yes, like, randomly we get this like weird ass song that's just like like just I, I like I don't know it's like a bad <laughs> musical or something, and it just like. It's just like, okay, while you're, okay, you're about to feel really sad. Oops, okay, let's start playing this really, you know, wacky, you know, a, a female vocalist who just, the song has nothing seemingly to do with the movie. And it just, it, 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 it would constantly take me out of it to the point that it was ridiculous. It's funny you mentioned that song. You're talking about the theme song uh, from Dion Warwick. The gotta get off, gotta get I'm, I'm going to do a bad impression of the song, <laughs> and I apologize. But funny thing is, I didn't realize this, but I actually knew about Valley of the Dolls back in 1999 when the movie Fight Club came out. And I never put the conditions together. But there's a, se- there's a sequence in Fight Club when uh, um, Helen, Bottom, Helen Bottom Carter's character... Uh, is she just spent the first night um, over at uh, the narrator's house, uh, Erin Orton's character, and when she's leaving the home, she's singing the theme from Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Ah. And so I never realized that until later on, after when I was like watching this movie, and I'm hearing that theme, so I'm like, I know I've heard this before. Where have I heard the sequence before? And then I saw Fight Club on TV not too long after watching Valley of the Dolls, and that sequence came on, and her character is singing the theme song. I'm like, oh my gosh, this made total sense now. So that's I realize I didn't realize that that subconsciously, I knew about the future Valley of the Dolls when I was watching Fight Club. Um, yeah, I. I don't want no to should... way. I I, uh, I probably need to rewatch Fight Club because I'm. I'm only. Uh, I mean, I, I think I, I I think I know what you're talking about, but uh, I've uh, you know uh, only seen it. Uh, I know a couple of times, and I'm now I'm intrigued to go back and rewatch it because it's, I want to I want to see that connection. It's not like a big thing. She's kind of just singing the song underneath her breath, but she is singing the theme for Value of the Dolls. In, in one sequence. It's just a very kind of small moment there. It's, it has nothing to do with the plot at all, but I find those conditions to be kind of fascinating when a character mentions a song or says a lyric from a song that was in a movie. Um, yeah. Uh, I have nothing else to say about Value of the Dolls unless you do. I'm going to give my score of Value of the Dolls out of four stars. I'm going to give it two. 
that's where I am. I, I'm, I'm at a two. It's okay. just not, um, it's, just, I, I think if you're a cinephile, then this is one that should be on your list. I don't think you got to rush out and watch it right now, but I, I do think you want to put it on the list, uh, if for no other reason and that it, it, it is a cult classic, mm-hmm. uh, and that, you know, people, at least uh, re- uh, make references to. I mean, we, we actually have a reference to Valley of the Dolls and the sitcom The Nanny, in which Fran Drescher's character is reading uh, one of the Sheffield girls, uh, Maggie, uh, uh, no, not Maggie, um, uh, uh, crap, the, the, young, the youngest one. She's reading the story of, uh, of the, she calls it Valley of the Barbie Dolls. Okay. And so, but just, um, I mean, so we have, you know, a reference like that. And of course, we have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So I think to get an idea of kind of where Hollywood was or how it was perseived at this time in history, this is you know 1967. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood takes place in 69. So I think you know if you're going to watch that, I think it's a good companion piece, uh, and not that their narratives complement one another really, but uh, it just provides it's uh, you can understand more about what was going on, and you can understand why uh, Sharon Tate, uh, when she's at the uh, box office for uh, for the movie, and when she mentions to the, the manager, the one who goes and does, the one who went and did dirty movies. I mean, if you hadn't seen Valley of the Dolls, you're not going to understand that reference. Uh-huh. I understood it only because I knew enough of Valley of the Dolls to where I got it, even yeah. though I hadn't seen the movie, but I have more of an appreciation for it now. So it should be on a list. Uh, just doesn't need to be. I mean, we got the holidays coming up, so watch your Halloween and later on Christmas movies, and then maybe after, you know, maybe after the year, you know, then you know, uh, during January, which is a slow time typically at the cinema, except for those late release Oscar movies. You know, maybe you know, put this on and uh, invite some friends over. Don't watch it by yourself. Invite some friends over. Turn it into a drinking game. <laughs> have fun with it. And, and I think that would make it um, much more enjoyable. Definitely. I mean, it, it even has a uh, Criterion Edition release. And one of the special features in this, it compares Value of the Dolls to Requiem for a Dream, which I find to be a very fascinating essay. Ooh. Because Requiem for a Dream is this very kind of like controversial movie. And they say that in a few years, Requiem for a Dream won't be as controversial and it may be seen as kind of a a campy movie. And I found that to be kind of fascinating because we mentioned this before that Valley of the Dolls at the time of, of its release was very, you know, taboo and a uh, very uh, controversial watch. And that was the same thing with uh, Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream. Um, so, and I'm not going to a conversation about, but if you, if you ever do pick up the special edition, there's actually a lot of cool uh, features on there, but that there was like an essay, a visual essay on that disc that kind of described the comparisons between, both movies, which I find to be uh, very fascinating. Um, well, we're going to switch gears, like majorly switch gears, and talk about its sequel, Beyond the Value of the Dolls, but I'm going to take a really small break. We're going to play another ad from another podcast, and then we'll be back to talk about Beyond the Value of the Dolls. We'll return after these messages. Podcasts already seem to address every imaginable subject. One man broke new ground with seemingly random obsession about exploding helicopters in movies. He was a podcaster on the edge, a maverick broadcaster who played by his own rules, 
right now, he has a last chance to talk about the strange way helicopters explode in film. Exploding Helicopter, available on iTunes and Podomatic now. Think you know about Chopper Fireballs? Think again. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Recently, 20th Century Fox had two very heavy ideas. First, make a film called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Second, get Russ Meyer to write, produce, and direct it. You'll meet three girls, young, beautiful, talented, a tight trio that was the heart and soul of a rock group. Life was sweet, man, but not enough. The whole world was out there just waiting, and the beat inside pushed them to where it's happening. Hollywood, USA. Yeah, it happened all right. They got hooked on a non-stop merry-go-round where the only ticket you need is success. Be a winner, man, or forget it. When they made that first party, it was like too late. The whole thing was moving, reaching out, and they dug it. Whites, yellows, and reds were more than just colors, man. They were it. The magic dream pills. The chicks were wild and groovy. The studs were cool and cruel. The eyes so warm, the smile so friendly. But watch the teeth. They bite deep. Faces, so many faces, calling, begging, help me, love me, save me, don't listen, if you hear them, you've had it, come on, open your mouth, wider, here, taste, life, man, life, like it, hell no, tough, it's a one-way trip all the way down, <laughs> one little girl turns her back on truth and love, she'll have to make it with pain and eyes that cry rivers, the second finds her heart in the arms of another chick, don't look for evil in your brother's eye, the third bird finds her man, it's good, very good, but she almost blew it before she learned that simple truth. The boys are here too. One so sure that love was enough. It isn't. You gotta fight for it or it'll just get up and walk on out. Another cat's hungry. Bread and chicks. Make them pay. Love is free but sex isn't. Don't look back. You won't like the view. And what about you, man? What's your thing? You talk weird. What do all those words mean? Who are you? Don't look at me, man. You're not real. It's all here. Love, rape, murder, dope, grass, abortion, suicide. Something for everybody. Now hold it, man. Don't close your mind. This is what living is all about. The people who make Beyond the Valley of the Dolls come alive are the largest introduction of fresh young talent ever presented in a major motion picture. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is not a sequel. There's never been anything like it before. If you've been waiting for something new, waiting for a film to shake you into the freaked out, mind-blowing scene of right now, then come and see it, man, and find out why it's called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls from 20th Century Fox. Okay, we're back. Cinema Recall Podcast. You just heard a uh, trailer for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and... This is where things get really kind of insane during this podcast, and I don't like to post warnings, but I think I should. Uh, this following uh, sequence of this, this following sequence will contain uh, discussions about stuff of a uh, sexual nature, uh, drug use, um, murders. Um, and if you're sensitive lots at all, lots of sex. Lots of sex, yes. Yeah. So if you're <laughs> sensitive at all, I just wanted to put that warning out there for you. Um, so Beyond the Value of the Dolls is a uh, sequel to the movie that we just talked about, The Value of the Dolls, and it was uh, written by Roger Ebert. That's right, film critic Roger Ebert, directed by Russ Meyer. Uh, before this movie, Russ Meyer has been known for doing a lot of, like, other sets flits, flicks, including um, uh, Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, um, Vixen, 
Raj Rebirth is the first thing that he ever wrote. And it's a story about three rock musicians who come to Los Angeles to become famous. And then just like the characters in Valley of the Dolls, they get uh, connected with uh, drugs and sex. And uh, I, this, is, this is your first time watching this movie is this week, correct, Ryan? Yes, it is. Uh, this is uh, my, my first watch, and I was uh, much like with the previous movie. I am also uh, I was also like, what am I watching? Yes. Uh, but there was something like I couldn't turn away from it, yeah. despite questioning why I was spending my time watching it, other than uh, wanting to talk about it uh, with you, of course. Uh, but it was, uh, was like, why, uh, why, like, what is, what is this? And I, I mean, it's a, a quote sequel, but at the very beginning of the movie, we are told this is not a sequel and not so many words, but this is not a sequel to Valley of the Dolls. And, and, and yet it is, I, I don't know. It's like, I think maybe, I don't know why that's in there. It it, it should have been because it's taking place in Los Angeles. It's a very similar uh, storylines. And it's like, why, why did, I still don't know. Why did they have to make the point that this is not a follow up? You know, this, it's like a sequel slash not sequel to Valley Dolls. Shares name, shares similar plots, but yet uh, don't, but this is not a sequel. It's like, what? It makes zero sense. (laughs) Well, here's the thing too, Ryan, because Valley of the Dolls made a lot of money for 20th Century Fox, so that a sequel was bound to happen. And I know they tried to contact uh, uh, Jacqueline and Suzanne to do the, you know, the script sequel to this, and she declined it. So they had the property, and they're like, well, we gotta make this movie. Um, so they found uh, Russ Meyer uh, because his features uh, made a lot of budget on, so they made a lot of money on a short amount of budget. You know, he usually, he usually shoots his movies for about maybe $30,000, but then they grossed over like $100,000. So he's definitely making a you know, budget on his features. So 20th Century Fox hires him. Uh, he, in turn, hires Roger Ebert, who at the time was the only critic to give Russ Meyer's movies a good review. So <laughs> they fly out to Los Angeles, and uh, they put together this film. And for a major studio like 20th Century Fox, to release a movie like this is just really strange. And if you think about this, since the whole merger with Disney... Beyond the Value of the Dolls is technically a Disney movie. So the sensitization flick about these, uh, you know, three beautiful women uh, getting involved with like sets and drugs and all the other things right there. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll <laughs> is technically a Disney feature, and I find that to be very strange. He mentioned the beginning sequence where it has that, you know, that title about this is not a sequel. During that sequence, we see all the credits rolling and everything. You are seeing the ending of the movie, which yes. is really kind of bizarre. I mean, you would never see that today. You would never see a movie that has credits roll where you see what happens at the actual end of it, at the beginning. And I find that to be very kind of 
fascinating. And then we cut to uh, the great sequence of um, the, well, actually it's the Kelly Affair doing their songs. And I'm actually a big fan of the Kelly Affair and also what they became the Terry Nations. I actually dig a lot of the songs in this movie very much. Um, I like the characters more in this feature than I do in the original Valley of the Dolls. Um, I think that both band members, all three band members are different. We actually do kind of have a, um, a lead role of uh, Kelly uh, McNamara played by Dolly Reed. She's kind of our main focal point mm-hmm. of the movie. There's other characters in this, but she always stays kind of our focal character. And that's why I think the movie is easier to follow with her in there. Um, uh, she's played by uh, Dolly Reed. Actually, both Dolly Reed and Cindy Myers, uh, they were known before this movie being uh, Playboy and Penthouse Centerfolds. And this, and this, I think, is their like feature film debuts. And they don't do all that bad in this movie. Um, no, no, not at all. Uh, the, as you mentioned, the movie is much more linear. Yeah. Structurally, it is more sound. And we do have a lead character uh, with whom uh, we can identify you know, as our lead so we know uh, which is our, our our main action plot followed by our characters driving the subplot and uh, we're we are reminded uh, you know, that she is the focus of this story you remove her from the story and the, and the story doesn't work uh, whereas in the, the Valley of the Dolls, you can remove one of those girls from the story and it largely still works. Mm-hmm. So we know that she is pivotal, pivotal to the plot of this story, uh, yet we do have a similar approach in that we have a uh, – we, we, we do have an A, B, and C story, but it, it is very clear which one – is our A story. Yeah. It just – there's definitely a more linear storyline. It just happens to be edited by a madman because yes. in this movie, uh, there's one sequence when they are first talking about going to L.A. and it shows a bunch of like random photos of Los Angeles and them going back and forth with the words like, L.A. man, swim pools, movie stars. Another guy comes in saying, uh, bad air, pollution, noise people. <laughs> and it just, it just, I'm like, what the hell's going on? And then, and then it cuts to them driving in a van, going to the city, and they're doing like a musical number. And I'm like, am I watching Josie and the Pussycats here? I mean, what's going on? <laughs> I mean, it kind of and, like... and it happens real fast, just like with uh, with Neely's rise to fame and Valley of the Dolls. And and this one, we have uh, the, the the this rock group who is you know largely obscure, and yeah. then all of a sudden, boom. It's like where where's where's the development? Where where is the where where's our rising action? We've like we we've introduced everything and then boom, yeah. you know, we're uh, we it's like we've jumped several steps. We've gone way too far ahead, and uh, that that's something that shares very similarly in in which I I wanna I I wanna see at least some struggle of getting <laughs> to the top. I realize we're focusing more on the fall after you've achieved fame, but come on, give me even 10 minutes yeah. of some kind of development because we, we don't even get that much. Cause okay, because okay, when the movie begins, uh, the band, the Tilly Fair, are playing at like this 
high school auditorium, and then all of a sudden they decided to go to L.A. Now, I know the Kelly McNamara, uh, she is going to L.A. to visit her aunt, uh, Roxanne, played by uh, Erica Gavin. Cool story here. That actress, Erica Gavin, is still around, and she liked my uh, – she's on Instagram and on Twitter, and she has liked my tweets about Beyond the Value of the Dolls. So. Oh, wow. That is so cool. I, I, so I'm definitely going to share this episode, but I found that to be just very cool. So Erica Gavin, she plays her aunt, and uh, she uh, knows about this party uh, hosted by uh, Ronnie Z-Man Barzell, played by John Lazar, and so they get a chance – to play a party with Strawberry Alarm Clock, and so that kind of catapults their fame. So they didn't really, there's no really struggle there because they knew someone in the industry, and I feel like that's kind of the way it happens with a lot of people. It's just who you know, and she happens to know this big record producer, and I know that uh, Ronnie uh, is supposed to be based on, um, uh, gosh, Ronnie Spector? Um, no, it, uh, Phil Spector. Sorry, Phil Spector. That's who Ronnie Barzell is supposed to be based on, is Phil Spector. Um, oh. And so they get involved. Uh, so after their big party with the Strawberry Alarm Clock, then they're starting to be on chat show circuits. Um, the person who plays their manager, um, I want to say, I forgot his name now. Um, oh gosh, I'm bad at this. I totally forgot what his name is now, but there's an actor who played, uh, no, Harris, yeah, sorry. The actor's name is David Garan. Uh, he plays their manager, Harris. Uh, he seems to have a little bit of resentment because he really does like Kelly's character, or Kelly the character, and I don't know why they're not in a relationship. I guess in the beginning of the movie, they are. But then once they move to L.A., he starts getting involved with this porn star named Ashley St. Ives. Great porn star name, by the way. Yes. Uh, <laughs> played by Edie Williams, who actually dated Russ Myers at the time of this movie. Um, yeah. And then he starts becoming depressed. And there's a moment when he even tries off himself after they get popular um the uh drummer of this film uh her, her, the actress name is a uh, marcia mcbroom um she gets involved with uh this lawyer uh, and then she has kind of fallen out too with this other botzer um yeah I, i'm so sorry folks this movie kind of I'll try my best to explain all different things that happen, but it's best just to kind of to go into it blind um, mm-hmm. because there's just so many things kind of going on. All you need to know about Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is that it's a movie about a rock band who comes to L.A. and then a bunch of strange things happen to them. Um, now, for me, I have seen this movie before, and my story about how I got introduced to this movie is that when I was a young kid, around the age of 12 or 13 years old, um, I actually one day found my dad's, you know, porno stash. I'm going to say right now, I I found his porno stash. Looking through uh, VHS movies that we had in the house, I found this, you know, other bots that was just kind of hiding. And I'm like, oh, 
I don't know what this is. But I have a couple boxes, and I open one up, and I see it's like all stacked up Playboy magazines. I'm like, oh. And then I open up another box, and I see a whole bunch of movies in there. And there is a uh, Playboy video that had a bunch of, like, uh, big-breasted women. And Russ Meyer was the host of that video. I'm like, and they're talking about the movies he made. I'm like, huh. So I went to the library because, you know, I didn't have much internet access back in uh, 1996. Uh, So I had to go to the library, look up Russ Myers, and I saw all the other features that he did. And I discovered that he made this movie called Beyond the Value of the Dolls that was written by Roger Ebert. And I'm like, I've seen episodes of Cicely and Ebert. Why would he write this movie? And so I had just, I had to see this movie. And um, I think I found a copy of it at a video store. And I don't know how I was able to rent it, but I was able to get a copy of it, brought it home, and I was expecting to see, like, this all-in-out, you know, sets and nudity. I thought there's going to be, like, close to hardcore pornography because it's NC-17. I'm like, ooh, that's going to be, like, really tiddling. So I had to wait till my parents were asleep. And I popped the movie on. And I was actually becoming kind of engaged with the story because it is sexy in a way. And it's kind of, like, a confusing story. There's music going on. And so that's kind of my first experience of it. And then I watched it back again when I was uh, probably in my late 20s. And I was able to find like an actual uh, good copy with its widescreen presentation. Because on VHS, they only have like the pan scan. Um, so that's kind of like my first elements of watching that film for the first time. Wow, what a great story. M- much more interesting than my... Uh, just watching it on Amazon Prime. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, I, I, I but you kind of go through movies like different phases of your life. Like, I when I was watching the movie the first time, I'm like, oh, I just want to see some just some tits and ass, and there really isn't that much. I mean, yes, there's nudity in there, but it's not like very. It's not like all the time. Uh, in fact, I'm kind of confused why this movie still has an NC-17 rating. Um, in fact, I know when the movie first came out, it was given an S rating by the MPAA, and so Russ Myers wanted to add just more things to it. But if you watch the movie today, it seems more like it seems better to have an R rating than an NC-17 rating. Would you agree or disagree with that? Oh, most definitely, because with the NC-17 rating, you're going to, uh, I think, uh, kind of. Uh, not alienates not the right word, but you're certainly going to um, there are going to be a lot of people who are not going to come and see the movie because of it being an NC-17 rating uh, more so than being the being the R rating. Mm-hmm. I, I think you run the risk of just being a bit too niche or narrow with your target audience. And it's not going to be as it, – it runs the risk of not being nearly as commercial as it could be. And you're, you may not see the box office return that, that you need in order to double your budget because, you, first of all, you got to make it back and then you have to double it in order to make it any real kind of uh, – any uh, minimal profit. So, 
Yeah. So I think that is, and I think that's why we just don't see NC-17 anymore. I mean, maybe there are NC-17 movies out there, and I'm just not, I'm just not thinking of them. But uh, you know, there, I mean, R is just much more popular. And it's how um, you're just you're going to get you're going to get more asses in the seats. Yeah. So that's what you're going for. You'll get more asses in the seats for the rated R movie than you are with NC-17, because you might even have some theaters which won't play an NC-17 movie uh, because of the risk of those who are under 17 getting into the movie. So you might even mitigate the number of screens that you have access to as opposed to R, and in which case you there's nothing, or I should say very little, that an NC-17 movie could offer the story that you can't you know, have in an R movie. So that's my thought. Yeah, the only, only movies that I've seen that were NC-17 is, of course, Showgirls, uh, then Lust mm-hmm. Caution from Ain Lee, uh, then we have um, uh, the movie uh, Shame. Um, gosh, what the hell is that guy's name? He was the director of uh, 12 Years a Slave. Um, Steve McQueen's Shame. Yes. Um, that was NC-17 with uh, Carrie Mulligan and the other actor that I can totally blank my name on right now. Um, gosh, what the hell is that guy's name? Uh, it's going to bother the hell out of me. I'm dumb that you tell this. Michael Fassbender. Uh, mm-hmm. But that was a movie that was NC-17 that felt like it deserved the NC-17 rating. And I don't... Mm-hmm. Being the fact that Beyond the Value of the Dolls is definitely a cult feature. I mean, even this feature was rated R. Uh, I don't think it's, you know, if release a day, it probably would still not find the audience. It definitely would not be released by a major studio. No. If, if made today. So this was just kind of like one of those, like, lightning in a bottle situation mm-hmm. where a big major studio uh, took a chance on this very uh, broady sensitization flick. Um, and I think that is what makes it stand out. I like the fact that it's NC-17 because it makes it more kind of underground, and mm-hmm. I like that. Uh, okay. Kind of like John Waters movies from that era, like Pink Flamingos and uh, Multiple Maniacs, like mm-hmm. that type of genre, where it should not really be meant for everybody, because this is a movie I cannot honestly say that I will recommend to everyone I know. There's a certain uh, group of my friends who I can totally recommend this to, and they will have just a fun blast with this. But another group mm. of friends, I'm going to have to be very cautious and be like, yeah, this probably, movie's probably not going to be for you, because you're probably not going to do this joke, because this movie is supposed to be a spoof and a satire of Valley of the Dolls, and supposed to be kind of a spoof and satire of the whole entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. And how uh, these women um, really kind of like capitalize on that. I mean, you have them going out with like different partners. Uh, one of my, in fact, we're into uh, my favorite sequences, but one of them concerned the, the drummer of the band. She's dating this, this lawyer, and they have these sequences where they're in love, and then she's at a party. And she meets this boxer, um, who is definitely a, a fill-in for Muhammad, Muhammad Ali, and uh, they mm-hmm. start having an affair. And I just love the part when she is caught having an affair with uh, Muhammad Ali's character by her lawyer boyfriend, and she just goes, 
You said you were going to study. You said you were going to study. And it plays that dramatic music like it's the guy's fault that he showed up. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so it's just, I don't know. It's it's sequences like that. Um, it's the, uh, gosh, the sequence of the Kelly, uh, the Dolly, the Dolly Reed's character with this older man named Porter doing pot and her giving him a hand job, I guess, you know, it's just yeah. really strange. It, this, the plot kind of goes everywhere, but it still stays kind of intact until you get to the very last sequence. And I don't want to spoil anything at all with that, um, but you know what I'm talking about, the whole sequence when they're at Z-Man's party, Oh yes, oh yes. And they start doing the acid, and you're hearing, um, was it now the Sorcerer's Apprentice mm-hmm. playing in the background? And without giving spoilers, uh, someone gets beheaded, and you're hearing the 20th Century Fox fanfare music being played at it. Uh, there's a guy just like a, uh, there's someone dressed as like this Roman emperor, someone dressed as a Nazi. Um, it's just really it is bizarre it is it is it is an it is an acid trip yes i mean for the audience as much as it is for the characters that are in the scene yeah and then after that what i found to be the most strangest thing besides all the crazy shit that we've seen throughout this whole feature and there's like a lot of crazy stuff even when they're at parties just the first party and it's cutting to all these different characters saying things like these random sequences that have nothing to do with the move the plot forward. Uh, I think you see one character dressed like like Christopher Lloyd and uh, Dame Edna's at this party, uh, and they just you 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 know what I'm talking about the first party sequence. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Even stranger than that is the very last sequence when you hear the narrator talking about all of the characters. Oh yeah, it is. It, it's as if this was based on a true story, and yeah. then we, then we. I mean, and I guess maybe one can make the argument. Well, perhaps it is because these, you know, story. I mean, these are perhaps slightly exaggerated, but these are real scenarios that some people faced. I mean, they probably faced them today, but I think certainly they were faced more during this time. Mm-hmm. And but uh, but anyway, um, but you get this. Like the based on a true story where you where you hear like what happened to them and where they went and and it's just like where how does this fit in with the <laughs> with the pacing and the tone of the film this is just way out of left field and I mean as you mentioned uh, that was edited by Madman I think this is uh, another uh, indicator of that you know may quite possibly be the case perhaps he was on acid when he was editing this movie. Uh, or she, I, I can't remember. Uh, I don't remember the editor's name. Uh, yeah, it was just like I was like, "What? This is so weird." Uh, but I mean, it was. I guess it was interesting to hear like what happened to him. But it totally took me out of the movie, especially as we go from uh, acid trip and beheadings yeah. to but where are they now? So like, what the what? So. Yeah. Going back to the party at Z-Man's place, because I'm not going to give any spoilers, one of them, the characters in that, goes completely insane and starts to attack people. I'm not going to say who does what. Uh, we kind of saw that sequence 
in the opening credits when the movie yeah. first starts. Um, but that sequence kind of harkens back to Valley of the Dolls in a way because of the whole Sharon Tate and the Manson murders in a way. Yes. You know, which I define to be, I don't know, this movie came out, like, I think it was, like, I think 1970, and I mean, just only, like, a year or so after the date of, after the death of Sharon Tate, and you have a sequence, uh, kind of like that, sort of similar vibe. Less than a year. Uh, Yeah. uh, That was, uh, because we're reminded of it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's August, uh, was it 15th, or August 19th, it's the... Uh, August 1969, and yeah. so this movie gets released in April 1970 at the end of April. So you were still shooting this movie uh, mm-hmm. at that time because you know, that's August, the release is April, so you know you're, you're probably either finishing up or still in the middle of principal photography. Oh. And uh, so that's a great analogy uh, that you make there. And uh, it's just it's it is it's so very close because uh, because of when principal photography may have been that could have directly influenced this scene because they were happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. Uh, guys, well, as always, we like to discuss uh, some of our favorite moments of this movie. Um, I don't know if you have any, but I know I do. Um, even though it's random and chaotic, I kind of like the first party sequence of this movie. Um, I kind of laugh at the whole suggestion scene with, uh, Kelly McNamara's and the old guy in her room. Um, I can't really go into too much detail i do like even the last scene even though it's kind of bizarre ah i think the whole movie as a whole is just a one of those experiences that you just kind of have to see for yourself if i had to pick like one moment of the movie that i actually kind of like um it's when you have uh edie williams character ashley st ives um seducing um the manager, uh, Harris Allsworth, played by David Guerin, and they're in a car, and they're having sex, and she talks about all these cars that she wants to have sets in, and she screams the words Bentley over and over again, but then it just cuts to different shots of a Bentley car. It's my first time in a Rolls. Nothing like a roll. Nothing, nothing like a roll. Not even a Bentley. Not even a Bentley. 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 It's like a roll. A roll. A roll. And I was like, well, that's kind of different and bizarre editing choice. But Russ Meyer has always done that with his other features. Like, he never shoots... Uh, set scenes in any conventional way. Uh, he'll always just cut to random images of things that don't really have nothing to do with the plot of that. So just the whole choice of editing, the way that was done, I found that to be kind of fascinating because it's different than from the norm. Because uh, there is set scenes in this movie, but it's not then really super, like arrived in a traditional sense there, you know, that most people would consider 
sets it to be. There's always like close up of bodies like uh in between like bed frames or something. And it's just something there's something like just kinda off by it. And the fact that it's all kind of cut together really fast, it's hard to really kind of get engaged with it. But so I found it to be kind of fascinating. Yeah, my favorite scene is the uh the the scene in which uh our band manager meets his demise and I won't go into details uh, as to uh, how or, or why, because this is a movie that I think for that you should go in mostly blind. Uh, but I, I, it's my favorite scene for a few reasons and not because it, it means anything to me really cinematically, but it was my favorite scene because one, I'm like, how the hell did he get where he was? It's like, how, it's like, who, who lets you into the building? And it's like, how do you, how do you get there? And then I love the, um, how it's a, how it echoes. It's like a black mirror, perhaps, and, and how it echoes the scene at the beginning of the movie in which he's spinning the, the color wheel as the band is playing, um, because that's the same song that is playing uh, during this scene. And uh, how you know we really do feel for uh, Harris. We can empathize with him greatly because we can uh, identify with uh, how he feels uh, maligned. Uh, perhaps even betrayed, and now he's a nobody, and he has to hear his song um, you know, being uh, being played on national television, uh, in which you know he's just uh, just uh, totally disconnected from. And I think it's one of the more emotionally charged scenes. Um, but I think how it mirrors that opening scene, you know, is quite pretty. In yeah. a in, in a dark way. Yeah. No, definitely, definitely a good point right there. And uh, yeah, I, I I do remember this sequence too. Where and it's funny too. After like uh, Harris does hurt himself, then it's funny too how him and Kelly become somewhat connected through that. Mm-hmm. And then here's the weird thing too. Like there is a sequence when Harris's character um, gets involved with one of the other band members of the show. And here's what I found to be kind of an odd thing, and maybe I missed something, but in the morning, she wakes up and claims that he raped her, and I, I just, I, I thought they were both having consensual sex with each other, uh, and then it turns out it wasn't that way at all, uh, but he was the kind of depressed one, and she was on him for comfort, I, 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 I I'm, I'm still kind of confused myself as I'm trying to describe the sequence to our listeners, uh, but in the movie, uh, Harris uh, gets involved with one of the bass players. Uh, she is feeling sorry for him because Dolly Reed's character is involved with this other person named Lance Rock, who is this uh, kind of a good-looking guy. Uh, I don't know exactly what he does, but she's involved with him, and he becomes Harris. Harris becomes depressed and tries to. Uh, consult with um, Cynthia Myers character um, and I the I just had sex and she blames him for that and uh, then she gets involved with um, um, Kelly's uh, aunt who I said was played by Erica Gavin they have a, a, a moment together 
Um, and then that happens at Z-Man's party, and then just bad shit happens over there. And I really so bad want to tell you what happens, but I just want people to kind of discover this movie for themselves. So that's why in, I don't describe plot details, even though I feel like I should, because I feel like I'm confusing the hell out of people when talking about this movie, you know? But um, I think we should... I give- like to say, oh, oh, what a, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. However... Nobody is like going out of the way to deceive anybody in this movie. It okay. is just way, way, uh, it is out there and open for everybody to see. And it is just, um, uh, a, a endless parade of, you know, twisted relationships. Gosh, very much so. Um, <laughs> so if you had to rate Beyond the Vile of the Dolls, what would you give it? Uh, if we go off our same scale that we established with Valley of the Dolls earlier in the show on a four-star scale, then I would give this one three stars. I'm about the same way too, but I'm going to give it three and a half stars. It's just the, ah. it's a nice tale of campy pleasure that I enjoy. Um, I would probably put this up with like showgirls of being just that yes. type of like bad sexploitation flirt that you just got to show people. Like I would definitely have a double feature of Showgirls and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. It was just like a fun night of drinks and good friends. And I think you'd probably make more of a drinking game to this movie than Valley of the Dolls. I can see that. I think it would definitely be much more uh, much more fun and would keep your attention a little bit more because the other one, you really do not have to sit there glued to your TV or computer screen to watch it. You You can... Uh, it's 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 not you can more passively watch the uh, original uh, Valley of the Dolls more so than this one. This one you you really do need to pay attention a bit more. Nice. One thing that I forgot to mention when we talked about Valley of the Dolls, and I'll mention this for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, but Valley of the Dolls was the first introduction to actor Richard Dreyfuss. Oh no way! He he has a small sequence in Valley of the Dolls where he's delivering a script to uh, uh, Neely's character. Oh, cool. No, then, I did not I did not pick up on that. And then uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was the first appearance by Pam Greer. She has a small walk-on scene. That you, it's kind of this blatant missing moments right there, but she's at the party sequence. And since that movie is cut by a madman, it's going to be... You have to go through that feature frame by frame to find her in there, okay? Uh, but we're connecting things to, like, other actors. We mentioned, like, uh, Quentin Tarantino, using uh, Sharon Tate for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And and then we also know that uh, Tarantino used Pam Greer for Jackie Brown. So I found that to be, all those connections to be very kind of fascinating. So we actually have connections with Pam Greer uh, to Tarantino and then to Sharon Tate, back to Tarantino's features. Um... Yeah, but I would still give Beyond the Valley of the Dolls uh, three and a half stars. It's a movie that I know I can understand completely why people would hate this movie. And in no fault, they would be at no fault at all with their opinions about it. But the movie is just so insanely shot and filmed. And the fact that it was written by Roger Ebert. So Roger Ebert can give bad reviews to movies that I like. He gave a bad review to Joseph and the Pussycats, which I hate him for because I think that movie is awesome. But the fact that he wrote this feature makes me respect him a little bit 
You know, the fact that he can actually do this strange sexploitation flick, the fact that it was released by a major studio, I think that's how it has a lot of its cult status. Um, or like I said before, this could be a Disney feature, so if Disney ever did re-release this movie, which I don't know why they would... <laughs> it would be. Uh, they're having problems uh, just kind of accepting the fact that Jojo Rabbit is part of their cinematic library. I, I, I hardly <laughs> think they're ever going to go out of their way to re-release a uh, box set of Valley and Beyond Valley of the Dolls. Uh, because uh, I think they're now realizing uh, exactly what they bought and are reconciling how they're going to differentiate these movies from their, you know, their kind of their their main image. Uh, so that's uh, going to be, uh, you know, very interesting. Maybe we'll see a, uh, you know, a, a new uh, kind of distribution label uh, that they will uh, kind of uh, kind of covertly put out there to because to, to get their money. But they're they're certainly not going to. Uh, release this under 20th Century Fox and definitely not under the Disney or even uh, Touchstone. I, I, I don't know if they still use Touchstone or not, but they're going to have to come up with uh, another distribution label to get because the, they need to get them re-released because that's the only way they're going to make more money. So they uh, have to come up with a way to uh, do that. Well, they have put these out on Criterion. And the Criterion version of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is really cool. It's got commentary from the cast members that are still around. Nice. That's cool. And they have a commentary from Roger Ebert on the film. And it has a lot of like uh, special features talking to the surviving cast members. Um, it even has some documentaries about Russ Meyer's uh, career. Uh, very cool stuff. I definitely recommend picking up the Criterion edition of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and I can imagine this film being played at midnight shows and everything, and if it stays as being a midnight movie, I'm happy with that, because at least it's being shown to people that do want to check it out, and that is all I have to say about uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and Valley of the Dolls. Uh, any other closing thoughts you want to bring out there? No, uh, other than I agree that this would make for a great midnight movie, Shadowcast. Mm-hmm. I don't think the Shadowcast would be nearly as popular as the Rocky Horror Shadowcast, but this is a, a fine candidate for midnight showings with a Shadowcast at uh, you know some uh, independently ran you know art house theater. You know, probably runs the you know wherever you live your 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 local Rocky Horror troupe. Uh, this is one that I think could very well lend itself uh, to that type of uh, experience. And uh, we could say the just like uh, Dr. Frankenfurter says uh, with the, the line uh, where you say this movie is sucks with this movie sucks with that audience protesta patient when uh, Dr. <laughs> Frankenfurter you know, chimes in. So, um, yeah, I think that's a great point. And if uh, you run your local Rocky Horror Troupe and you're listening to the show, uh, consider checking out Beyond Valley of the Dolls because I think you might have yourself a, a new way to take your uh, – to uh, add a, another um, opportunity uh, to enchant the community with your penchant for uh, performing art and campy movies. I love it. I love it. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. Uh, before you leave, uh, please plug anything you want to plug and just tell people where they can find you online. 
Sure. You can find me hanging out on Twitter at RLTerry1. You can also follow my blog at RLTerryRealView.com. That's real with two E's. Uh, with the Halloween coming up, you're going to see me uh, sharing a lot of horror content. I'm part of the All the Horror collaboration. And so you'll hear me on a few different shows and a lot of other podcasters that are going to be highlighting 31 different horror films. You're also going to hear from some authors and some other bloggers as well. So uh, make sure to follow hashtag all the horror or uh, it's, uh, the, the tag is all the horror 18 and uh, enjoy all the uh, Halloween and horror content that's coming out. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but again, follow me at RLTerry1 on Twitter, and I'll connect you with a lot of other podcasters and bloggers and other personalities who can really enhance uh, your uh, film Twitter experience. Very nice. Very nice. And we're we'll definitely going to be sharing uh, some of those posts uh, through Cinema Recall's uh, Twitter page, which is always at cinema underscore recall. We do have an Instagram and Facebook account. Just type in Cinema Recall Podcast. Uh, Coming up on the shows, that's right. uh, We are premiering our 31 days of Halloween where each day of the week I will be recording a horror-themed episode. Horror, sci-fi, mystery suspense, but it'll be like a Halloween-themed episode. Um, I'll be posting a quick little introduction uh, to those episodes very soon, so definitely look for that. Uh, Cinema Recall Podcast, we are available on Anchor, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Email us any suggestions through our email, cinemarecall at gmail.com. I am The Vern. You can find me on Twitter at Video Vanguard. Uh, video, as the way it sounds, and then uh, Van, G-A-U-R-D. Um, but again, big thanks to my guest, uh, Ryan L. Terry, definitely recommend checking out his written post. And uh, if I was at, in your area, I would definitely check out your screen writing school because I'm trying to write up my first short screenplay. So I would definitely want to ask you about some tips later on. All right. <laughs> sure, I'm, I'm always happy to uh, share my knowledge of the science and art of screenwriting. And I, I get paid to have fun. That's the way I see, see my classes because uh, it's uh, it's just as enjoyable for me as, as it is for my students because I, I love uh, you know watching future writers develop and you know I learn along the way for instance just real quick before I go okay. for the longest time I, I would uh, tell my students uh, show don't tell show don't tell show don't tell and if you're a screenwriter screenwriting student you've heard those terms before but I'm reading a, 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 a wonderful book that has really enhanced my uh, the, my experience uh, uh, in uh, being able to, in, ha- in my approach to screenwriting by Linda Calgill. Okay. It's called The Art the Art of Plotting. And she emphasizes it's not show, don't tell, it's dramatize, don't tell. So I'll just leave oh, you, uh, okay. listeners, so I'll leave you with that. Um, let, graduate from show, don't tell to dramatize, don't tell, because I learned that in the chapter I've read this week and it, and it, and it actually changed my lecture that I delivered on Wednesday because I um, thought of that concept in a whole new light. Dramatize don't tell, not show don't tell. That is a great sentence to leave the show off on. <laughs> Appreciate that very much. Um, we'll, we'll be back here to folks. Thanks again for listening and have a great day. Uh-huh.